Amen, amen. Well, good morning, ARC. Good morning, um, and welcome to our guests. We are in our 5M series on the new year, looking at Jesus and the 5Ms. And these are our five objectives that we have here at the church. Um, and this year, we just want to look at how Jesus would um, pursue these objectives and sharing the message of the gospel and showing mercy to our neighbor and shepherding one another to maturity, seeking to multiply leaders and plant churches and sending missionaries to the nation. So today we are on number four of five, seeking to multiply leaders and plant churches. So we'll be in Luke chapter 10, verse one to 12 this morning. But before we dive in and feast on the word of God, let us look to him in prayer one more time. Father, we do pray, Lord, and we thank you for the opportunity to pray, knowing, God, that your ears are attentive to the cries of your children. And Father, we pray that you would grant us faith, hope, and love to transform our minds and our hearts. We pray that we would be attentive to your word this morning and that you would raise up more leaders and more church planners and missionaries among us. And now, God, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart will be acceptable in your sight my Lord and my Redeemer, in whom I trust in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So when I was in the military, we had what we call OJT, on-the-job training. And that was to ensure that the future force would be mission ready. And the first thing when we think about multiplication, and it's a good thing that is followed by maturity, which we learned last week, is that we want to grow so that we can then go. We want to grow so that we can go. And the biblical way of being mission ready or multiplying is what we call disciple making, right? That's disciples who make disciples who then make other disciples. And in Israel, when a student would study under a rabbi, he would imitate his rabbi in every way. Their food choices would be the same. Their likes and their dislikes, their preferences would be the same and mannerisms. And you could literally identify the teacher based on the student. And we see this in the life of Jesus. The disciples were with Jesus. They were doing life with Jesus, following Jesus, receiving on-the-job training from Jesus. Because learning and growing and multiplying is not just taught, but it's caught. And our mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ, not ourselves. Our goal is to look like him and to love like him in such a way that Anacostia and the world would know that we are his disciples, not just because of the lips and the message that we proclaim, but because of our lifestyle that's lived out before people. And this is what Jesus was after with his disciples. But just like that awkward time frame when babies first learn how to walk and talk, they don't quite have a handle on that yet. In the Gospel of Luke in chapter 9 and chapter 10, he gives us a glimpse into that awkward time frame, that, that phase in which the disciples, those who learn and follow, was transitioning to apostles, those who are appointed and sent. And this is instructive for us so that we can see that we're not just supposed to be hearers, but doers of the word and to send out church planners and leaders. But it's also helpful for everyone because we all have a role in this process of multiplication, not just leaders, but folks that are in the congregation. And in Luke chapter nine, verse 40 to 62, the disciples need adjustments in areas of their walk and their talk and their attitude and thoughts. And these are attributes that we want to 
minimize and avoid at best. And then we'll take a look at our main text in Luke chapter 10, verse 1 to 12, and we'll see from Jesus attributes that we want to cultivate when it comes to seeing leaders raised up and sent down. So attributes to avoid, attributes to cultivate. Number one, we want to avoid the attribute of unbelief, of unbelief. Look at uh, chapter 9, verse 40 to 45. And for context, before the 72 was sent out, Jesus sent out the 12 disciples. And they encountered a man's son who was seized by an evil spirit. He was demon-possessed. And the disciples were unable to cast it out. And in verse 1, if you look there in chapter 9, Jesus had given them power and authority over all demons. So, so what was the issue? The issue was unbelief. They walked with Jesus, they talked with Jesus, they did life with Jesus, but they still did not believe Jesus. The man says in verse 40, I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they, the disciples, could not do it. Verse 41, Jesus answered, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. This statement was directed both to Jesus' disciples as well as the crowd that was present. We're living in a day, in a time when we have taken faith for granted. Yes, we're saved by faith, but we're also people that are called to live by faith, faith in Christ. We are a faith people. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. We have to first believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So the first question we want to discern is, do potential leaders, first and foremost, believe the truth of the gospel that they themselves preach? The truth of Jesus dying on the cross in our place and for our sins and rising from the dead. And we see there in verse 44, Jesus said, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And the scripture says in verse 45, but the disciples did not yet understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they may not can perceive it. And don't miss this. It also says, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. And if we're going to get anything right, let it be Jesus in the gospel. Paul said that this is of first importance. So if there's anything regarding Jesus that you have a question of as a potential leader or as a church member, don't isolate and not say anything. Ask the Lord, pursue the Lord, pursue his word and his people in community. And our purpose is ultimately to know God and to enjoy him forever, but everything else after that flows from that. This is of first importance. And it's the first attribute to avoid is unbelief and isolation. We wanna see leaders who believe the gospel and who are raised up and sent out. Number two, we want to avoid the attributes of pride and selfish ambition. Pride and selfish ambition. Verse 46 and 48 of chapter nine. It says, an argument arose among them, the disciples, about who was the greatest. And Jesus had to let them know that the way up is down. He said, it's the least among you who is actually the greatest. The kingdom of God is an upside down kingdom. It is a paradox to the world. And now a child during that time was, unlike today, was considered the least within society. So Jesus set a child before them as an example. And he said that a person who was humble enough to receive a child will receive both Jesus and the Father. 
There's no place for attitude of pride or selfish ambition. God opposes the proud, but he pours out grace to the humble. And as leaders are raised up and sent out, we need God's grace, the ability to do what we cannot do in our own strength. So we want to avoid pride and selfish ambition. And number three, we want to avoid tribalism. Look there in verse 49 and 50. It says, John said to Jesus, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him. Why? Because he does not follow with us. Christ warned them not to do that. Those who are faithful followers of Christ are actually for you and not against you. That's like the wizards throwing punches at each other during halftime. They got the same jerseys on, like what's happening? It makes no sense and outsiders are confused. Now, this is not saying that all tribalism is wrong. Some distinctions are good and right, but tribalism is wrong when we see ourselves as superior to our own teammates. Now the disciples had that issue during Jesus' time and we see that same issue during our time even within the same Christian denomination. And at the end of the day, our highest loyalty is Christ in his word and brothers and sisters who trust Christ alone for salvation. So we want to help leaders to discern the necessary distinctions and apply wisdom at levels of healthy partnerships. The goal is to advance the gospel without compromising the gospel. And number four, we want to avoid seeking revenge when wrong. Look there in verse 53 to 56. And this will happen in ministry. And it says, so Jesus and his disciples were on their way to Jerusalem, verse 53, but the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. The Samaritans didn't want to receive Jesus and the disciples because they were Jewish. They were prejudiced. That was wrong. But equally wrong was their response from the disciples. They were ready to call fire down from heaven and consume the Samaritans, and Jesus rebuked them. See, we can't control other people, but we must have self-control to live at peace as best as it depends upon us. The text does not tell us what Jesus said, but his actions spoke louder than his words. The disciples are not to use their power or their position as vengeance when wrong. Preaching is our role, but judgment is for the Lord. And we want to avoid seeking revenge on those we are sent to serve. How you handle being wronged matters. And lastly, number five, it says we want to avoid idolizing comfort and convenience. We want to avoid idolizing comfort and convenience. We see this in verse 57 through 62. 57, it says, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. 
Jesus has a way of crushing the romantic view of ministry. Many people are willing to follow Jesus until they find out just how involved that is. Here, Jesus lays out three statements on the cost of following him. He says in statement one, Jesus said, the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Following Jesus is not easy, nor is it comfortable. The second statement, he says, leave the dead to bury their own dead. Not that you don't take care of your family, but you don't use family as an excuse not to follow Jesus. There's a difference. You want to prioritize with Jesus in mind. And statement number three, Jesus said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So to look backwards is to go off course, and to go off course is to be unfit for the kingdom of God. So we want to avoid multiplying leaders that idolize comfort and convenience rather than following Jesus as a priority. So does that mean that leaders need to be perfect? No. They're growing in holiness like everyone else, but it does mean this is a slow bake process. And as Paul encouraged Timothy, we should not be too quick in the laying on of hands of anyone and thereby sharing in the sins of those. So we want to avoid the attribute of unbelief, the attribute of pride and selfish ambition, tribalism, seeking revenge when wrong, and we want to avoid idolizing comfort and convenience. In other words, these are heart issues. All of these things are visible indicators of our invisible heart. And as the disciples were transitioning from learners to being sent out, they, like us, have areas in their heart to grow in. So when thinking about our M of multiplying leaders and planning churches, Luke chapter 10, verse 1 to 12 is helpful in cultivating a heart for ministry. It's helpful in thinking about the attributes and areas for us to focus on as a church and cultivate in our lives. So let's read as we look at Luke chapter 10, our main text for today, in verse 1 to 12. It says, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them out ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into the streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that time. So four attributes Jesus calls us to cultivate in our heart as we seek to multiply leaders and plant churches here at ARC. It's a heart to multiply and mobilize through prayer. See that in verse one and two. It's a heart to multiply and send courageous leaders and teams to neglected areas. 
See that in verse three and four. And a heart to multiply and train leaders to discern people of peace, verse five to nine. And lastly, a heart to multiply and send gospel preachers, verse 10 to 12. So number one, a heart to multiply and mobilize through prayer. And it says, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So after this, after what? After the disciples had displayed all of the previous attributes to avoid, Jesus now lays out attributes that are needed. After he appoints the 72 to go out, he gives them instructions to travel two by two, both for practical and for cultural reasons. One, that they might strengthen and encourage one another. And sending two by two fulfilled the requirement of Jewish law of having two witnesses. Jesus does all things decently and in order. He was appointed by Jesus to prepare the way so that the town would be ready for the king. He went out to say the king is here and the kingdom has come in the same way that we go out and say the king has come and the king is coming again. It's the same message about the same king. And Jesus, looking out on the towns and villages, says that the harvest is plentiful, laborers are few. And that is our priority that we see first here is to pray. So when thinking about our heart to multiply leaders and church planners, our priority must be prayer. The church has a role. The leaders have a role. We all have a responsibility to pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. We think it's about slick strategies, but when we pray like this with our hearts open and humble before the Lord, we literally become the answers to our own prayers. Just like the disciples, because the answers are in the prayer itself. So the question we have to ask is if we are writing the prayers of those who have come before us, how are we preparing and praying for those who will come after us? God is a big God. And in confession, sometimes my prayers, our prayers are too small and too limited. Do you actually see yourself as an answer to prayer? Like literally, someone prayed and you're here. See, that'll change your whole perspective. God's promise is that our prayers are not in vain. Six years ago, there was not a church called Mercy of Christ Fellowship or a church called Congress Heights Community Church. We didn't know the details of the who, the what, the where, or the how, but thanks be to God, there are now two more gospel churches, both in Southeast and Northeast DC. And just think about that. In the midst of a worldwide pandemic, a church was birthed. Laborers were sent out with Pastor Joshua. It was God answering prayer. Jeremy McLean had a desire and a passion for years to see a church planted in Northeast and now at this very hour, the gospel is preached here as well as in Northeast because God answers prayers. And Pastor T was pastoring literally in paradise, right? The Cayman Islands before the Lord called him and his family to Southeast. So trust and believe that that decision was not done apart from prayer. God answers prayer. And I think what I'm trying to say is God answers prayer. 
And we should never not be amazed at that. When we hear and see how God has been at work, we ought to be encouraged that God has answered prayers and will continue to answer prayer. And this is the confidence that we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. First John chapter 5, verse 14. So prayer should not be seen as a means of getting God to do our will, but rather as a means of getting God's will done on the earth. So if we want to see leaders and leadership teams raised up and sent out, we need to cultivate a heart to pray for laborers, truly pray for laborers and discern what role the Lord may have you play. Number two, we want to cultivate a heart to multiply and send courageous leaders and teams to neglected areas. There in verse three and four, it says, go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. See here, there is an urgency and importance, but not a carelessness here. There is no sugarcoating the fact that this will be an intense environment. But the instruction that he gives, despite the environment, are expected to be followed. And they and we may not see it, but it is for our good and for the advancement of the good news of the kingdom. Oh, God, if you would give us here at AIC eyes of faith and a heart of obedience in this. And now you know, you recognize that wolves, these are some ferocious animals. They're skilled hunters. And scripture describes them as deceptively cunning. Hence the reason you don't recognize a wolf until it's too late. And lambs, on the other hand, are defenseless and helpless, and they need a shepherd. So in that way, elders and church planners and missionaries that are sent out are both sheep and shepherd. And yet Jesus says, go. Go in the midst of that environment, but with this in mind, that the great shepherd has saved you and he has sent you, and you are the sheep of his pasture. And when you get this and grab this in mind, what can you do with a Christian that has that perspective, that is locked and sealed in their heart? that God has both saved you and he has sent you. Therefore, we want to multiply courageous leaders and courageous teams that don't sugarcoat the cause and yet are still willing to go. Where their testimony will be like the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 1, verse 20 and 21. He says, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And the word eagerly expect here, which Paul is saying, implies a turning aside from all other interests. Paul had one ambition, that Christ might be exalted, whether in life or in death, living or dying, Christ might be seen by others more clearly. Paul was courageous, but Paul was also wise. Let me just say a word on fear, worry, and wisdom. Jesus calls his followers to bravery, but Jesus does not call his followers to foolishness. Believers must not seek out persecution. It will come on its own in different degrees and for different people. Matthew chapter 10, verse 23 when Jesus sends out the 12, in that, in that um, context, he says, 
when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. So it is good and right to have an appropriate care and concern in certain situations. In certain circumstances, even Paul stayed and endured hardships and persecutions and afflictions. And other times, Paul escaped hardships, persecution, and afflictions. It's right to take danger seriously. Proverbs 14, 16 says, a wise man is cautious and turns away from evil, but a fool is arrogant and careless. That's wisdom. So choose wisdom over worry. Worry is literally a divided mind. That's what Jesus and Paul warns against as sin in Matthew 6 and Philippians 4. This is when we work to try and control the uncontrollable. In other words, it's just a lack of trust in the Lord. Because the reality is twofold. One, most people fear fear. The fear of the perceived danger of people, places, things, and circumstances. And that fear prevents us from properly loving God and people. And the number two reality is some people, places, things, and circumstances are actually frightening. But just to remind you, courage is not the absence of fear, but courage expresses itself in the presence of fear. Certain streets you don't want to cross, bugs that you don't want to see, food you don't want to eat, people that you meet. Literally, the list can go on and on where we can live a life paralyzed by fear, which is really no life at all. But God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of love, power, and a sound mind. And Here's the bottom line question. How do you respond to fear? How should you respond to fear? Do you use fear as an opportunity to examine your heart? For instance, what do you believe about God? What do you actually believe about his faithfulness, his love, his power? What do you believe about yourself, your identity, your purpose, why he has you here at this time and at this place? What do you believe about other people? their motivations, their intentions. Six brief practical things to consider. Number one, discern between legitimate care and concern and sinful worry and fear. Use wisdom. Do that in prayer with community and do that honestly. Number two, confess and repent of any habits that have formed in your heart around unbelief, around doubt and idolatry. These things are sneaky, it's subtle, and these things seek to control your life. Number three, reflect on the faithfulness of God. Throughout the pages of scriptures and the narrative of your own life, think about how faithful God has been. Number four, meditate. Meditate on your identity in Christ, both who you are and whose you are. Believe his promises and take God at his word. Number five, develop a prayer life. That includes thanksgiving and praise. And lastly, number six, practice loving God and others rather than being self-focused. So discern, confess, reflect, meditate, develop, and practice as those who are sent out as sheep among wolves in the midst of fearful situations. This is the type of discerning heart that we want to cultivate and multiplying and sending courageous leaders to neglected areas. 
Number three, we want to multiply and train leaders to identify people of peace. We see that in chapter 10, verse 5 through 9. It says, whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you, heal the sick in it, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near. So the greeting of peace to a house is more than just saying hello. It refers to a peace that only Christ can offer in salvation. It was a way of acknowledging that they were God's representatives with good news of peace with God. Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. No longer enemies due to sin. And those who were once afar off can now be brought near because of Jesus. The disciples were sent out with instructions to find that person of peace. This is someone that the Lord has given a ready heart, one that is open and interested in having peace with God. He has prepared the soil for the seed of the message. Jesus even mentions that while in their home, the disciples are to stay there and accept whatever that they provide for them. And this is why they didn't need money bags or other things, because God himself will provide their every need and confirm his provision through those people. Now, this is different from the false teachers of that day. They would go from town to town and house to house, just like the disciples. But they would go looking for a bigger payday and then leave again. Both their motive and their integrity was corrupt. So by the disciples staying and accepting whatever was before them, this served to set them apart from false teachers. Integrity in this way was countercultural and served as an apologetic. And integrity today is countercultural and serves as an apologetic. Verse 8 and 9 says, whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you, heal the sick in it, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. God used healings to that household to further confirm that the kingdom was near. There are so many different things that God was doing all at the same time. He was preparing hearts of persons of peace. He was providing for his people, confirming his message and affirming his messengers. He was doing all of these things and giving an apologetic for the faith as well, all through our one act of obedience. And this is helpful for us at ARC as we seek to follow Jesus's example. Number one, that God has a people in this city. And one way to advance the work is to support the work. So isn't it so encouraging to know that God has people in Anacostia? It could be your neighbor. It could be the waitress at Busboys. It can be the librarian, the business owner on the block, the teens hanging out on the corner. They could be persons of peace. But how do you discern a person of peace? Well, it's not if, but it's when you evangelize. You look for a person with an open heart that God has already been working on. The one who is open and interested in your message. And the one that is open to follow through. These are strong indicators that we should not take for granted. 
It's not in our presentation skills or our lack of presentation skills, but it's in the heart that God has already readied. And recently, as I was looking at our group me prayer app for Coffee and Convo, many of them said um, in their prayer requests to pray for peace of mind, to pray for peace in their home, peace in the relationships, peace on the job. They just wanted peace. They wanted shalom this completeness, this soundness, this well-being that the Bible talks about. But we as messengers of the king know that true shalom, true peace can only come from God through Christ. And we don't need to be discouraged by these prayer requests and the things that we currently see because God has a people in this city. So we send evangelists and we send church planners and we send missionaries. Why? Because God has a people in this city. And also, if you're not planning a church or going on some kind of team, there's ways that you can also play a part, and that's by supporting the worker. And that can take place either in direct prayer or financial support to the person that is going out or through organizations like the Crete Collective. They're doing a necessary work of coming alongside churches and neglected areas with resources and other supports as needed. From the Creek Collective website, one statistic says suburban areas require churches to become independent in three years, which is extremely difficult for most churches in neglected neighborhoods to achieve independence so quickly. Most churches located inside neglected areas need five to seven years to reach independence and larger support levels do the hard and larger support levels to do the hard work necessary in those communities, end quote. So that's literally two times the length of time needed in order to become independent. So supporting the worker is a good work. And the Creek Collective is a good partner to see more leaders raised up and sent out. And lastly, number four, we want a heart to multiply gospel preachers. You see there in verse 10 to 12. And it says, but whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into the streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it would be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. There are people who will receive the preaching of the message, and there are people that will not receive the preaching of the message. But the disciples were still to preach the message because the king was coming. And if they rejected it, the disciples were to leave in a very public and profound way. Verse 11 says, even the dust of your town that clings to their feet will be wiped off against you. This was a dramatic symbol. This was a sign by Jews when they would leave Gentile territory. They would literally take one sandal off then take another sandal off and knock them together so that not even the Gentile dirt or dust would enter Jewish land. Gentiles were non-Jewish people and they were considered as those who were far off from God and accursed. So this act that they did here demonstrated that those who rejected the message of the kingdom were in jeopardy of being far from God and accursed. But it also served as a last appeal an appeal to avoid that type of judgment. See, the good news of the kingdom was really good news. But for those who chose to live their lives apart from the king in rebellion, then by default, they chose bad news. 
Sin will prevent us from entering the kingdom. Don't be deceived. There is no paradise apart from Jesus. The reality is hell is not a place you want to be. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 and 10, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's the bad news. But the good news is the king himself came to deal with this problem. He sent the 72 ahead of him to announce the solution. And they were like, nah, we don't want that. The kingdom comes regardless of their response. Jesus is still king regardless of their response. We either choose to bow now or when he returns again. And in verse 12, Jesus closes with this sobering word. He said, the city that rejects his people says, I tell you, it would be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. What day? On judgment day. And we will all stand before him. Sodom, which was the epitome of unrighteousness, will fare better than the city that rejects the kingdom message. To whom much is given, much is required. Greater revelation is greater responsibility. All of Israel's kings looked forward to Jesus. All of Israel's prophets prophesied about Jesus. All of redemptive history points to Christ the king who would establish an everlasting kingdom. My friends who aren't Christians, Jesus was the only one who lived a life that no other king could live, holy and perfect and righteous. He alone was worthy of the kingdom. And that's why 72 was going out and preparing the way for this king. This should have been received with great joy and great anticipation. The Old Testament pointed to the Christ, but they didn't see Christ going to the cross. The kingdom was coming, but they didn't know it was by the death of the king himself. And at the cross, the king became the substitute for the sins of his people. He drank the cup of God's wrath, and at the same time, the king crushed the prince of darkness. And when he died, he really died. But on the third day when he rose, he really rose. He defeated both sin, death, and the grave. Now this risen king commands all people everywhere to repent and to believe and be saved. And those that receive him are no longer separated from God, but are adopted as sons, as heirs of God and co-heirs with the king. And for the Christian, the kingdom has come, but until his return, it won't be fully realized. God is still building his kingdom. So we want to multiply gospel preachers that will be a, a strong uh, witness that the king is coming back. We want to multiply and train leaders to discern people of peace, to send out courageous leaders and teams in neglected areas and mobilize them through prayer. This is the heart in which we want to cultivate here at Anacostia River Church. So here at ARC, there are a few but strategic ways we want to accomplish this. Number one is through church planting residency. We have a church planting residency here for aspiring church planters, pastors, missionaries, and Christian workers. 
And the goal of this residency is to equip men and women for ministry in the inner city neighborhoods and cross-cultural missions. It involves both study, discussion, both exposure and experience. In fact, Joshua was our first candidate and we hope to see many more come through this program in the coming years. Number two, pre-COVID, we had a leadership training group for prospective uh, deacons and elders here at ARC. And we hope to get that back soon. This was an encouraging time and fellowship that served as a pipeline of leaders for our church. So be in prayer with us as we think through what that might look like post-COVID. Number three, the Crete Collective, as you mentioned earlier, um, this comes from Titus chapter one, verse five, where the apostle Paul sent Titus to pastor on the island of Crete so that he would put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town. In other words, Titus was to plant churches with strong leaders in tough towns of Crete. And these were the very places that most people overlooked. So the Crete Collective is a collective of partners to bring gospel churches to overlook brown and black communities. So there are a number of ways to get involved with them, either through prayer, through giving, participating in their info meetings. So I highly encourage you to check out their website at thecreekcollective.org. In other ways that we hope to multiply leaders here through experience and exposure is also members to join a church planning team when folks are sent out, pray and consider that lead a small group and signing up for the next small group leadership training, and even leading a short-term mission trip. All of these things are in an effort to multiply, mobilize, send, train, and equip leaders to take the gospel to neglected areas. So let us pray together that the Lord would raise up more here at Anacostia River Church. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you are still appointing and sending out your people. We praise you for all that you have done through ARC and sending out Mercy of Christ Fellowship Church and Congress Heights Community Church. We pray for more, God. God, you are Lord of the harvest, and we want to pray big prayers that you would raise up an army of church planners and overseas missionaries throughout cities and nations, not to make our name great, but to make your name great. Well, God, show us areas in our actions and attitudes to avoid and areas that we ought to cultivate. Reveal our hearts, change our hearts, that we would be a people who pray, who are courageous, who are discerning, and who boldly proclaim the gospel. And God, we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.